Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the Ecosiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org donate. As the socioeconomic effects of coronavirus worsen, the deep failures of our global economic order are being revealed. Is this the end of the neoliberal era? What will the economy look like after COVID-19? Can our next economy promote the overall well-being of people and the planet? On this episode of the Ecosiv podcast, Andrew Schwartz moderates a virtual panel with experts from around the world to discuss the possibilities for shifting toward an economy of mutual well-being and planetary flourishing. The five panel participants include economists Kate Rayworth and Stuart Wallace, economics professor Guna Jung, author and activist David Corton, and the executive vice president of the Democracy Collaborative, Marjorie Kelly. Welcome to the second installment of the Ecosiv Dialogues on Global Systems Change. I'm Andrew Schwartz, uh, privileged to be your moderator today. I am a co-founder and executive vice president for the Institute for Ecological Civilization, director of the Center for Process Studies and professor at Claremont School of Theology at Willamette University. Joining us from the UK is Kate Rayworth. Kate is a renegade economist focused on exploring the economic mindset needed to address the 21st century social and ecological challenges. She is the creator of The Donut for Social and Planetary Boundaries and serves as senior research associate at Oxford University, as well as professor of practice at Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. So Kate, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, also joining us from the UK is Stuart Wallace. Stuart is a global leader among advocates for a new economic system he is currently chair of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and previously served as executive director of the New Economics Foundation. After spending a decade with Oxfam, where he eventually assumed responsibility for all Oxfam's policy research development uh, and emergency work worldwide, for which he was awarded the honor uh, officer of the British Empire. Stuart, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, great to be here, Andrew. Yeah. Joining us uh, from the Boston area in Massachusetts in the United States is Marjorie Kelly. Marjorie is executive vice president and a senior fellow with the D Democracy Collaborative. Her book, Owning Our Future, The Emerging Ownership Revolution, won a Nautilus Book Award, which is amazing. Uh, Marjorie was previously a fellow at TELUS Institute. She was co-founder and for 20 years served as president of Business Ethics Magazine for five years, she was a lead consultant on the Ford Foundation's WealthWorks initiative for her research on uh, the role of capital in taking employee ownership to scale. She earned a position as a research fellow at Rutgers University. Amazing to have you with us. Thank you, Marjorie. Thanks, Andrew. So joining us from just outside Seattle, Washington, USA, uh, is David Corton. David is founder and president of the Living Economies Forum, co-founder of Yes! Magazine, uh, an associate fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies and a full member of the Club of Rome. He is former professor at the Harvard Business School, but we won't hold that against him, and a prominent critic of corporate globalization. 
David is best known for his seminal books, Framing a New Economy for the Ecological Civilization to which Humanity Must Now Transition. David, it's great to have you with us. Good to be here. Thank you. Last but definitely not least, joining us from Seoul, South Korea, at 1 a.m. his time, so you know he's committed to a new economy, is Guna Jung. Guna is professor of economics at Hanshan University. Recently worked, uh, his recent work on behavioral economics and economic philosophy has led to rethinking economic systems for an ecological civilization. He recently directed a project to develop a happiness index as a genuine progress index for 16 local governments in South Korea. Guna is a member of the Harmony with Nature Project of the United Nations, co-director of EcoCiv Korea, and for the past four years has been director of the International Transition City Conferences hosted by the Seoul City Government. Guna, thank you, my friend, for staying up so late. Yeah, yeah, very honored. In our previous EcoCiv dialogue on global systems changed, our panelists discussed how COVID-19 is revealing the complexities and the interrelatedness of our systems of society. So the economic, social, environmental implications. When it comes to the economy, what is this global pandemic revealing about our current economic system? I think it's showing um, what I characterize as the four major interconnected flaws of our current economic system. I call them the four U's. We've got a system that's unsustainable, that's unfair, that's unstable, and it's making far too many people unhappy. And they all link together. And it's showing also how precarious so many people in the world's work is. The International Labour Organization just yesterday put out an estimate that about half of the working age people's livelihoods might be destroyed by this pandemic. So, because they're living in the informal economy. So it's showing just how precarious so many livelihoods are. But it's also, I think, revealing truths about us as people, what we really value. There's been a redistribution of esteem to um, the people whose work really matters and whose salaries don't count at the minute. There's been also so many people saying, we're part of nature, Let's we depend on it, let's stop messing it up. So I think at the same time, it's revealing the flaws in the economy, but it's also showing what people really value. Kate, what do you think about that? I think those were great points Stuart made. And I would just, we, we since what, January, most of the world has been drawn, drawn, drawn into this COVID-19 crisis and we are, we're so in it, but let's just step back a little bit because I think what we're learning about our economy has a longer history. I mean, I just want to start with the 21st century. The economy we've inherited means that the 21st century has begun with multiple crises. We were hit in 2008 by financial meltdown. We are living through an extraordinary era of climate breakdown. And now suddenly we're in COVID lockdown. And any attempt to deal with these financial, economic, health, ecological crises, to deal with them one by one will not work. These are all deeply interconnected. And I think we, it's just more clear than ever that this is a time for holistic thinking that realizes that as we emerge from this emergency, we need to renew our societies and renew our relationship with the rest of the living world through economic transformation. And it's a very hard thing for those policymakers. And there's a critical number of people around the world who are making that decision right now. Where do I put these vast amounts of money that our governments are suddenly able to create? 
Do I just put them into bringing back what was there? And there's huge pressure from vested interests and lobby groups who had their industries up and running to, to just to bring that back, bring that back and, and, and look at the jobs we'll bring back. And on the point of jobs, there's a huge understanding of why that's appealing. But those policymakers are saying, if we just bring that back, we'll have run out of money completely before we can even get started on transforming our economy so that they are far more regenerative, green and sustainable. So we have to do these at the same time. And that's why this moment, which nobody was looking for, nobody was hoping for, and nobody was expecting five, six months ago, this is suddenly the moment when all those decisions need to be made and they need to go in the right direction. Yeah, so what is the right direction, um, right? I mean, as you talk about the, the major impact that this situation is having financially on people's lives, um, you know, social distancing regulations leads to closing businesses, people are out left without work, feeling like they're in an extremely precarious situation. Let's go back to normal, back to business as usual. But what I'm hearing you say is that business as usual is, is not the goal. Uh, we need to move forward to a new paradigm, a new alternative, a new economy. Um, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. I'm going to let someone else jump in and say. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, I'll, I'll jump in here. At the Democracy Collaborative, we're actually right now doing some rapid response advising to cities on, on what, what can you do. And um, we've recently put out a five-point plan here at, at the Democracy Collaborative. And one of the points that we emphasize there is that um, we need a new era of community. It's our, it's our perception, and I think those of many others, that this needs to start. We need to bring our economy back down to the ground in the real world, in the world of communities, and start building from the ground up. So what? Um, and, and we're also focusing on um, the frame. I think it helps to think of this as a two-phase process. I mean, first we have the emergency response. You have to have people have food. You have to, you have to um, lock down for the crisis. Um, but the second phase is going to be when we refloat our economies, when we begin to go through the crisis and out of it. And on what terms will we refloat it? Uh, this could be a once in a lifetime chance to create uh, a different kind of economy. And so how do we cities, how do cities, states, federal governments begin now to be planning for that? One, um, one model that's been floated in the US is a, a coronavirus um, a crisis corporation that would help to acquire companies that are in crisis and then refloat them after uh, in the recovery. And th there's a chance there to refloat them on new terms. I mean, you might put the funds, for example, into um, reparations funds and help to rebuild communities, put them in citizen wealth funds so that these, these funds can be used to um, revitalize communities. Um, we're also saying this could be happening at the state or city level. They could they could create what we're calling local economy preservation funds, begin to acquire some of these, these struggling businesses that might go under and, and then refloat them, um, possibly to their original owners, possibly to uh, employee owners, municipal ownership, and so on. So to think carefully about how in this response, what kind of economy are we putting in place afterwards? And that's the question, right? What kind of economy are we putting place afterwards? And it's uh, it seems that even the there's this interconnection between how we address the immediate 
concerns where people need relief, but also making sure that that doesn't create more problems down the road that we also want to be thinking long term. Yeah. Um, David, do you have thoughts on this? Oh, I got a couple of thoughts. <laughs> I, I think these comments so far are, are tremendous and um, they all lead in the direction of what I think is one of the fi fundamental transformations we have to make in terms of bringing forward a new economy. If you look at this in the big picture, we have essentially organized uh, as a now global species around financial markets and transnational corporations as our primary units of organization and control. It is presented as a market economy. It is absolutely nothing resembling a market economy because it's all based on monopolization of control of money and resources. And the fundamental frame that we need to move to is we are not financial beings. We can't eat, drink, or breathe money. Uh, it, it's, it's only a number. It is, can be useful as a medium of exchange when you make it your defining purpose and value. You are, to use the technical term, in deep shit. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the larger frame we're coming to is, you know, the startling realization we are living beings. We are born of and nurtured by a living earth. Life exists only in living communities that self-organize to create and maintain the conditions essential to their own existence. Oh, you know, this in a way is so complex and so esoteric, and yet, no. you know, we all recognize it. I mean, it's just, <laughs> if you don't know you're a living being, uh, what, what are you? Um, so we have to recognize that the community is the fundamental unit of organization, mm -hmm. and that essentially all our human institutions have to uh, relate to, uh, be accountable to the community and its well-being, and that includes all our business organizations. We have mm -hmm. to recognize that money is a tool, it is not a purpose. Yeah. So we need to reorganize our whole financial system, but we also recognize that a business exists to serve the community in which it does business. Uh, profit is a means it is not the purpose. Uh, that leads us to a whole different uh, framing of economics and how that works. And Kate's work is just so much on the frontier here. And one of the things that gives me hope is she seems to have become the leading economist in the world at the moment, at least the most in demand. <laughs> and uh, right. <laughs> that, that gives me cause for great celebration. There may be hope for humanity after all. So, you know, that is our task, and this is this is the opportunity that the coronavirus has created. I, you know, in my experience, I've I've been involved in these global community discussions for a long time, but never in my life have I experienced the readiness for the 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 depth, the the the, the solid rethinking that uh, that we're working on right at this moment. So, thanks to all of you, and of course, Stuart is is very much. Uh, at the heart of pulling together these conversations into a, uh, a global process. And I'm totally struck with, with Guna and what he's doing in South Korea, having visited there recently is uh, on a visit that he arranged. And 
you know, to meet with the mayor of Seoul and to see the thinking that's going on there at a very deep and profound level. Uh, potentially one of the one of the world leaders in, in helping us work this through. Yeah. So, Guna, I mean, as David mentioned, you're doing amazing work in Korea. Um, it seems that the, the what we, I'm hearing from you all is that the crisis that we're in um, actually is also an opportunity for transforming deeply problematic systems that have dominated our, our global economic social order. What do you think about that? I'm not sure whether the pandemic will change the tendencies that prevailed before the crisis, even in, in South Korea. Yeah, we, we succeeded in preventing the coronavirus disease relatively successfully. But in terms of the economic crisis, the central government are doing exactly the same thing what they have done before, like, and so-called the Naomi Klein described it as a, the shock doctrine, the big fossil fuel enterprises or industry might be get help from the central government. So I'm helping the local governments to broaden the way to the new type of uh, economic systems at the local level, but that voice is too weak and people don't care, don't pay much attention to the new alternative way of economic system. So the key is how to make the experience meaningful by making people to reflect on the costs of the status quo, but that is not that clear yet. And in that sense, I think this kind of uh, uh, experience is like a black swan. And the problem of the black swan uh, described by the Nassim Taleb, the, the title of the book, is we might repeat the same errors and mistakes in the future if we don't approach totally differently. But even though many uh, people say uh, that we, don't, we need to change, but I don't believe that the power elites or the central government or bureaucracies really do believe that it's the time to change. So this type of a meeting or dialogue is very important so that the people should listen to the possibility or the urgency or the productive ideas that can change the world in terms of the new system. So the donut economy or circular economy or many of the solidarity economy or that type of uh, experiments or economic systems, their performance is very good in, at the local level, but it's not spread widely yet and not that introduced to the media, by the media to the public yet. Can I just come in there? Because I think what Gunnar's saying is absolutely true. There's going to be huge forces trying to get back, as Kate was describing, to business as usual. No question. It's in a lot of people's, in a lot of powerful groups' interests to try to. Um, but what's circulating now and what we need to all be involved in, as Kate's inferring and, and the rest of you are inferring, is building back better, building back to a different system. Now, what history tells us about system change is probably four things that are pertinent. One, um, events matter. So crises are also, obviously, as everybody said, opportunities. And the 2009 financial crisis was an opportunity that was missed. We didn't change things. But the possibility is there. But what it also says is you cannot expect just to change things by telling governments about policies or writing good papers, however important it is. What you need 
is a vanguard power base, people coming together, organizations, people coming together across levels from community right up to policymakers, across geographies and across sectors to actually say we want something different and their voice really being heard. So it needs power, number one, and it needs um, the way the neoliberals brought it about was by an elite power base, universities, businesses, etc. We haven't got that opportunity, but we have got the opportunity of millions of hands and hearts. Um, so we have to link to the climate change people who are saying we have to link to all the organ development people, the human rights, all the people that are saying we need a different system and we need to work together. And the lesson is always if we don't manage to work together, we don't manage to create enough power, we won't make the change. The second thing one needs is good new story. We know what's wrong. We need a positive story, though about what we want and finding the right way, what, how that communicates in different places is not going to be easy. But David was saying some of it already, like this isn't about money, the economy is not, it's about life, it's about humans, it's about communities. Um, we're part of nature, we depend on it. Um, those, we need stories that say actually, uh, the economy is just a human construct, we can create something better. So we have to tell some new stories and we have to tell them powerfully using all the arts, the culture, uh, the different people. And the third thing we need to do is to make sure um, that we've got a coherent body of theory and practice. And that requires us making sure that we don't just demonstrate what works at the micro level, but we manage to show it can work at scale. We manage to talk about it. And, um, you know, I'm very encouraged by things like Amsterdam taking up a donut economy, what you're talking about, Bono, et cetera. So there are examples there, and I'll come to some more in a minute. I think there is room for hope, but we have to work together. And that's why we set up we all and we i never thought 100 well now about 130 global organizations would willing to collaborate they are even before this crisis many more want to now so we can do it but it requires us to organize and to be powerful and to have our voice heard that's brilliant and what i'm hearing from all of you is that um, this change in systems this change in economic ways of being also requires a change in values Yep. Um, and as we think about transitioning toward a more sustainable and equitable civilization, what many of us call an, an ecological civilization, what are the marks of a successful economy? Uh, how should we be measuring success? Is GDP adequate? Um, are other indicators better? Um, what do you say to that? I've got one. <laughs> Don't use GDP, right? GDP, here's a bit of hose pipe, right? GDP just tells us that success looks like that. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that ain't no good that's that's this uh expansionist endless expansionism that has taken us into the crises that we keep hitting that explains financial crash it explains climate breakdown it explains covid if we endlessly expand expand we need to learn to thrive so here's one i made earlier yep it's a donut right this can become a metric this can become a metric where we say, are we meeting the needs of all people? Let's put the living beings that we are, as David said, at the heart of our vision. Are we ensuring that everybody can meet their essential needs? And are we doing it in an ingenious way that means we can do it within the means of the living planet without causing climate breakdown and acidifying the oceans and creating a hole in the ozone layer? So we need to not grow endlessly as the old hosepipe does. We need to learn to thrive in balance uh, we already know this in the level of our bodies, that the health lies in balance. And we need to take it from the human body to the planetary body. So I'm thrilled that I've been working with the C40 network of 
ambitious climate mayors. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the last year, we've downscaled the donut in the cities of Portland and Philadelphia and Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And Amsterdam published their downscaled, their downscaled version of the donut uh, just this month. In the middle of this crisis, right, and that was never timed. I mean, that's a sort of bizarre time to publish this new portrait of your city in the middle of a crisis. But the uptake, the response, the desire, we've had over 300 applications for people saying we want to do this in our city, in our nation, in our neighborhood, which to me shows there is such a huge desire amongst change makers everywhere for a transformative vision. So last thing I'll add is we need metrics that show us we are moving from degenerative economies that run down the living world to regenerative economies that use resources again and again and again. So that's the circular. So we need metrics that show us we're in that transition. And we need metrics that show us that we're moving from the divisive economies that drive the value created into a hands of a 1% into far more distributive economies that share value created. And that we'll see through who's Mm -hmm. getting who is capturing the value of business? And this is where Marjorie's work is so brilliant. Who owns the enterprises? And how does that change the distribution of value? So from degenerative to regenerative, from divisive to distributive, I think we need metrics that help us catch that transformation of dynamics. That's that's yeah. so great, Kate and, and Stuart. I love everything that you're saying. Yes, we need an economy that, that works for all of us in different kinds of metrics. And, and also this requires different kinds of institutions built on different kinds of values, not just financial extraction, maximum profits, but, um, but who owns it, as Kate said. I mean, right now we face a stark fork in the road. We can either go to an economy that's going to be owned by Amazon, it's going to be owned by the behemoths, and we're going to lose half or more of local businesses, or we could take a different route to a more democratic economy that stays within planetary boundaries. A lot of that is going to depend on on who owns it and what kinds of institutions are there in that economy and what are they built on? For example, um, you know, are we going to bail out Exxon or could we instead uh, take it over and wind it down? I mean, if we, the people owned Exxon uh, or we could buy it on the cheap right now, we could begin to wind it down in a way that is fair for workers and sustainable for the environment. Are we going to have control over our uh, local electricity uh, is PG&E going to be in charge, in which case it's neglecting line maintenance while it's spending billions on stock buybacks? Or can we have something more like municipally owned utilities, which have you know better, uh, better rates, better service? So the kinds of who, who owns things, what the institutions are built around, what kind of values they serve, it's going to be a lot of what uh, determines the economy, the future that we get. Yeah. yeah, I and my colleagues, we picked three uh, slogans like bailout for people, bailout for local economy, bailout yeah. for living earth, and stopping bailout for fossil fuel corporations. And the yeah. third one is Green New Deal for the next economy. So yeah, we are concentrating three slogans together. And then we are approaching the parliament congress on, or political parties to spread our ideas or our uh, demands with people. So we are organizing based on the grassroots in Seoul. Yeah, I agree. I certainly agree with that. The you know, ownership is power. 
mm-hmm. talk a lot about equality of income, but the really important thing yeah. is the equitable distribution of power and rooting it in community. And it's why I'm, I'm just thrilled by the work that Marjorie's been doing for years. And I'm very excited to hear about the current work because that is right on target. I also want to mention briefly in terms of indicators. You know, when I was young, I actually uh, uh, I kind of was a student pilot, so flying a little airplane. And I often think of this GDP growth as the equivalent of being in an airplane. You're flying an airplane and you're flying it on instruments. But your only instrument is an airspeed indicator, and your only rule is maximize your airspeed. Now, if you've ever flown an airplane, you know if you do that, you will push the stick forward and you will fly that airplane right directly into the ground. Mm -hmm. And this is one reason why I'm, I'm so thrilled with Kate's work you know, she's urging us to, well, where do we want to go? We've got to be in balance with Earth. Earth's got to be healthy. We've got to meet the needs of all people. So this begins to get our instrument panel. So you think about yeah. this dashboard of indicators, and there's no one that you just push the stick in that direction. You've got to get them all working in balance. And yeah. we need not only the right indicators, but we also then need an economics. And instead of isolating itself, into we are the exclusive discipline, a real economics has got to be the ultimate uh, transdisciplinary study. How do we bring together the whole of human knowledge in a way that helps us understand our relationships with one another and with Earth and to get those right in a way that supports the well-being of all? Yeah, and I'm hearing if market activity isn't the best measure of a successful economy, um, but I'm also hearing language of well-being. I know, of course, that is key to Stuart's work and happiness. But not ha-ha happiness. But, but not ha-ha happiness, right? No, that's why, yeah, right. well-being is probably a better term than happiness, I think, because um, I could be happy on an illegal substance, but I wouldn't be flourishing. But, uh, <laughs> well-being that's another suitable term. Flourishing um, is a great term. But I think in the end, we call it well-being economy, and that's a very widely used term now. But, but the center of the donut is, in effect, that space. I don't think it, I think, it's having that set of instruments and having that direction and those value shifts. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm pretty open what we call it. It's about getting there and actually making that change. So I love donut economy, you know, so I, I think the, cent- the center is the space of well-being, isn't it, Kate? Is that fair? Well, actually, I'm going to differ slightly because... Okay. The center of the donut promises us food, water, health, education, social equity, housing, I don't think that's well-being, but I think meeting all of these essentials within the means of a stable, thriving, living planet are yeah. the preconditions. Okay, okay. I agree. I like to right. flip the donut yeah. like a plate. Yes. So imagine if this was our plate. Now, what's spiraling up out of yeah. that? So you need um, com- you need com- green growth. Say, oh, it's green growth. It's growth. No. It's growth. I say, no, no, no. <laughs> It's not good. No, I like it. I take your point beautifully. No, I know, yeah. I know. Um, but it's yeah. lovely to think of it as spiral. Yeah. And, and what's spiraling up is well-being and thriving and community and yep. participation and purpose and creativity. I, I agree, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Thank you. That actually is a very beautiful way to put it. And I know many of the people online are really wanting to know more about the donut model, but also the, the how-to question, right? How do we begin to transition to a new economy? 
how do we scale the donut model to city level and local communities, getting people to embrace it? Could you all say a little bit about where you see the most exciting edges and opportunities for transforming economies, uh, specific cities, nations, communities, initiatives at the forefront of this? One of the things that um, we all, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, instigated was something called the Wellbeing Economy Governments, um, which at the minute is consists of New Zealand, Scotland and Iceland, but they're busy talking to a range of other governments as well. They're, they're now, it's not, it's independent, they're, it's run by the governments themselves with the um, Scottish government providing the secretariat. But already New Zealand instituted last year the world's first well-being, well-being budget. Um, Scotland's got a, a range of um, well-being indicators and a national performance framework, similarly Iceland. And so they're trying to build their economy around well-being. Now we need that needs expanding. It's only one bit of the picture. But if you've got cities, as Kate's been and Gunnar have been describing, if you've got communities and, and enterprises shifting, if you've got um, some countries shifting, they may not be the big ones yet, but they provide the exemplars. Look at look at how well somewhere like New Zealand, and they all happen, those three economies all happen to be one run by women. Um, that may or may not be coincidence, but um, look at how well New Zealand's handled COVID as well, because they have a framework where they're thinking about this is the economy is about life, not about, as everybody's been saying, not the host pipe or the plane uh, going into the ground. So that's a, a place of hope. And I think the more that, that thinking gets spread, the more we start developing new narratives, then and lots of communities already, in, if people want to join in, um, we all, we've got something called We All Citizens, where it's fairly new, but a thousand people have joined. They're working together all over the world. There's all sorts of mechanisms for people to get involved. These aren't the only ways. We're just one catalyst amongst others. So this is about us all working together, not saying we're, we've got the answer. And no, you know, the answers are out there. We've got to work together is the critical bit. But there's a lot going on and it requires collaboration. It requires new stories and it requires power. And we can create that and we can use the movements that are out there to push for that build back better. Yeah, I, I would just add that um, we've talked about how this begins in communities. And what we need is a new form of economic development. We call it community wealth building. It's, it's been uh, enacted in, in pieces and in pilots um, in, in the UK, in the US, all over. And it's about, you know, rather than giving incentives to try to attract the next Amazon warehouse, uh, building from local assets that stay locally owned, locally rooted. Um, Preston, England is one of the best examples of this. It was a down and out kind of rust belt city. And it began uh, building locally, using pension funds to invest locally, having worker cooperatives, having large uh, anchor institutions like nonprofit hospitals or the police station or the schools purchasing locally, investing locally, hiring locally. And, and that city, uh, Preston, has been named the most improved city in the UK uh, using these, these methods of community wealth building. So that, yeah. that's, a, that's a key piece of it. Let me add, while I was developing the local happiness index, I was uh, suggested not to make one single aggregated index in terms of the happiness, but people like the rankings and they, they like to compare the happiness level. So that was not the case for me to, to, to do. 
But yeah, I totally agree with the happiness index or the dashboard type of alternative indexes or the GDP is very powerful in terms of very simple in many ways. And also it has a national accounting system. So they can aggregate and then make it a broad synthetic type of statistics into one single index. So for me, I'd like to have two track strategies. One is developing the happiness index or circulation index or ecological footprint index for the local government. But at the same time, to change the national accounting systems to, for example, a system of environmental economic accounting, SEEA, developed and then experimenting in the European nations. So for the central government or central bank, and then combined with the Office of Statistics for the National Economy. So that is my strategy, whether that is good or not, but I'm very, I try to be very realistic in that sense. I'd like to get some uh, uh, comments. <laughs> the only comment, just one question, because one of the things in New Economics Foundation we did a lot going up was trying to get um, the coalition government, well, in fact, succeeding with other people to get the coalition government to start measuring well-being as well as GDP. And that was useful, but one, rec- but it's only going to change if there's a shift in that in the values, and if there's enough people pushing for something else. So the indicators are very important, but by themselves they don't do enough if there isn't enough pressure on the government to start acting in a very different way. So it has to, you know, in New Zealand, the good news is why they're looking at different measures and a wider dashboard is because they believe in a fundamental change, but there has to be that belief. And, how, and if there isn't there, there has to be pressure to that people want it and enough pressure on it. That's the only, that's the, the, the trouble. If the indicators come too soon, it doesn't change much. Yeah, there's an interesting aspect to this that we need to be aware of, uh, which would be the reasons that the economy crashes if it is not growing. And of course, we've got our jobs so connected to the existing system that that's an issue. But there is also the issue of the ways in which we create money and the observation that since it's debt-based and the way that's all structured, if the economy is not growing, the loans can't be paid back with the interest that is due. And so the economy crashes. So these, these are all artificial problems big. that are a result of, yeah, they're very big, but they're just the result of the misdesign of the system that we also have to address. Not a problem we're going to solve right here, but uh, we need to have it on, on our, in our awareness. But on that point, David, seems yeah. to me there is an opportunity as part of a change to push for something like UBI, but create universal basic income, but some of that created out of central bank money um, directly into people's pockets rather than as debt, um, as government debt. Now, that could be seen as too radical, but we're in effect going to be have quite a lot of central bank money created anyway. Let's use it for really good purposes. And if it could be used to, you know, what Marjorie's point about citizens' wealth funds in, into funding um, both people's income levels at a basic level and funding, keeping business, small and medium businesses alive by creating citizens' wealth funds, citizens' involvement in them, that could be a really powerful way. And we're not going to be in an inflationary time for a long time to come. So 
actually money creation going directly into people's pockets for a UBI or for keeping um, small firms afloat and changing ownership could be a really powerful model now. You know, this is one where I'd like to push back on you a bit, Stuart, in terms of the larger view of what it means to be human, what life is about, and how that relates to universal basic income. I think we absolutely need to be trying to figure out how to guarantee people a means of living. But one of the things I've come to realize is the very nature of life is a struggle against the dynamics of entropy, of dissipation, that life exists only as a product of life's labor. And I'm also, you know, that leads me into a recognition that our sense of well-being and our real deep satisfaction, in part, has to include a sense of, of, of being useful, yeah. of, of contributing. Yeah. Um, so at one level, our immediate thing, we may need to guarantee people's income, but I think we also need to keep in here. What are the real deepest sources of meaning and satisfaction? Yeah. And how do we work that in? I mean, totally agree. Just quickly, sorry, I'm talking too much, but value, rethinking how, who and how we value uh, people, whether that's monetary or otherwise. is So universal basic income would give economic security, wouldn't make people feel valuable. So there has to be a sense of quite a common purpose that, you, that everybody is being recognized for the value they create, whether it's looking after children, it's caring for people, whether it's financial or not. So we cover that whole non-monetarized economy as well so if you just do ubi then you're you're not going to make people feel valuable and connected and part of a purpose it's got to be something wider as well you have to have that value shift and a way of valuing people in all sorts of ways um, monetary and non-monetary can i jump in with a comment and connect to that that i think of the economy this construct that we've invented and called the economy it's a it's a human invention for provisioning for our wants and needs, goods and services. And I think of it as having four fundamental ways that we humans have invented for doing that. Mainstream economics jumps in and goes, oh, economics is the market, supply and demand, as if the market is the economy. It's certainly the predominant one. It's certainly one that's shut down now. It's certainly through the neoliberal era become very widespread um, and dominated other spaces. But it is not the economy as a whole, right? There's the market in which we organize through price-based exchange. And prices are brilliant. As Adam Smith saw, it's an amazing decentralized way of coordinating the wants and needs of millions of people, just do problems. It serves those who can pay, the rest it ignores. And it values what's priced, the rest it exploits. Those are not minor problems. So there's all sorts of things that we're not going to accept doing through the market. Then we've got the state. The state steps in, it provides public goods, raises taxes and provides public goods. And that's public provisioning. Um, and we all have access as residents of a country. So market and state and the 20th century economics obsessed with this. Is it, you know, are you a free market capitalist or a state loving socialist? And in that battle of those two, we lost sight of two fundamental forms of provisioning for our well-being. The household where each one of us is sitting right now because we have literally been told to confine ourselves to our households. And we're living with our family, our friends, our relatives, our flatmates, where we create households of care and of provision. It's the work that's done by parents, as Stuart was just saying, so disregarded, raising children, caring for our parents, and suddenly care in the home is essential. 
for people who are ill or for children. I'm homeschooling two 11-year-olds at the moment. It's just nonstop. So that's three of them, market state, household, and the commons. I'm seeing the commons popping up a lot in the, in the boxes. The commons, and my goodness, people used to say, what, what is the commons? I've never heard of the commons. If anyone's joined a WhatsApp group for their street community, that's the commons, right? It's about having a common group, co-creating something that we value right now, and it's called community, and we connect and help each other. But the commons is also our global atmosphere on which we all depend. It's also that street garden you make on the corner, hood, on the corner of your neighborhood block. It's Wikipedia on the World Wide Web. So we need the market, the state, the household, and the commons. And I, I think what we really want is a society in which everybody has a claim of access to all of these. So a claim of access to the market, and that's where the claim for a universal basic income to, to be able to purchase something of your most essential needs, universal access to health services, education services, to housing if you need it. So public transport. So we want universal basic services too. Everyone has a right to belong to a family, to belong with other human beings in a household. And we all have a claim to the commons and a responsibility to steward them well. So I think of all of them, and I want to live in a society that recognizes the value of all these forms of organizing and ensures that everybody has access to contributing to them all. I'd like to jump in on a, a comment on Adam Smith and the market that uh, often gets lost. At least by my reading of Adam Smith, he was very suspicious of any concentration of market power. As I recall, he even was, you know, if, if two artisans or, you know, two, <laughs> two salespeople, two farmers get together and try to form a combine, that is in violation of his sense of market principles. He was an extreme decentralist. Um, so he, I mean, he would have been horrified at the concentrations of corporate power within the existing economy in his name. Absolutely. And of course, I think all of us feel equally horrified by that concentration of power. You know, one of the things that is coming up a lot in the, in the um, audience questions and comments is this relationship, and, and Kate, you just mentioned this relationship between global and local, and mm -hmm. um, sometimes even a tension between the two. And I think this talk of systems, uh, of global paradigms and economies, it can be pretty daunting for people. And many listening at home really want to know what I as an individual can do to help support um, this kind of paradigm shift that you all are advocating. Well, uh, you know, one thing we should be doing is, is investing locally to the extent that we can. Um, most communities in the U.S., have a community development financial institution, it's a terrible term, CDFI, but these are local loan funds and we, we can invest in them. They, they're um, modest returns, but um, Boston Community Capital here in, in the Boston area is doing, doing great work, lending into disadvantaged communities, for example. We ought to be having our bank accounts with local banks um, rather than some of the big ones that are, uh, the big banks these days are mostly um, hedge funds. <laughs> not even doing lending to medium-sized enterprises. So we should be with, with um, credit unions or, or cooperative owned, cooperatively owned banks or, or local banks. And um, also mutual aid societies are really rapidly forming around the country now. And these are ways that we can, we can help our neighbors. I mean, simple ways, just making sure the neighbors have their food and, and, and uh, maybe 
shopping for each other. And then what we're hoping at the Democracy Collaborative is these mutual aid societies can begin to form the basis of local collaboratives that can do community wealth building going into the future. Can we can we amass, amass the funds that we need to, to help local businesses? A lot of the infrastructure is simply missing for local investing. We're yeah. all investing in Wall Street because that's where the road is paved. Yeah. We yeah. haven't paved the roads for me to invest in my in my neighbor. We need, we need to be building those. Um, so there's a, there's a lot that we can do, and I think participating in these kinds of events and educating ourselves and reading together. And um, a, 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 several people in the chat box have talked about uh, indigenous peoples. We've done some work with indigenous peoples, and they talk about decolonizing our minds. <laughs> this is a lot of what uh, what Kate is doing and what and what David is doing is we need to, to think differently. We've been colonized to think about. Uh, the economy as it is. We need to, uh, decolonizing how we think. Uh, this is not all about Wall Street. It doesn't need to all be about big corporations. Um, so reading and thinking and, and talking to each other is, is equally important. Yeah, I think the, the scale is very important. So the economy in itself basically uh, imply kind of circulation, but the markets and then division, the extreme division of labor make the circulation looks like a flat or linear. So we need to scale down the circulation at the local level. And the other thing is the all the living things on Earth do activities and make some waste, but the waste is a kind of food for other living things. The only exception is human uh, waste. So we, we need to make it a kind of circular. Yeah. So I met the mayor last week and then we are going to make some policies at the local community level and at the autonomous district level and then all bigger level, for example, food or energies or services or banking systems for the universal income fund, something like that at the very diverse levels we are going to implement as an experiment to get, to get over this crisis. So now the people find that the, the market stopped working in the time of crisis, market is malfunctioning. So they realize that the local resilience and local sustainability or self-sufficiency is basically very important for their basic needs. So the local government or the public leaders are now uh, make some achievements to show and to spread that type of ideas to the people in general. But still, the medias are not that friendly or medias ignore that type of uh, approaches or that type of policies. So we are way long way to go, but I'm focusing on how to make the innovative idea of local circular economy more tangible, more mm. sustainable, yeah. Yeah. and then get kind of the citizenship by the local residents or people. Beautiful. Stuart, yeah. Just, I mean, when you think, look globally at one level, we actually need to relocalize, re, you know, de-globalize quite a bit of our economies. But on the other hand, we need to globalize our um, contact, our social organizations, our connections, even, and, you know, our international organizations are not fit for purpose. It's going to be a huge job, but um, critically, 
coming out of the COVID crisis, we got to not just be thinking about building back better for ourselves, but what's the situation of um, countries that have been caught in the most difficult situations in this in this global economy, and how do we help them? So we've got to have a sense of a global community, and our hearts our hearts and our energies going out globally. You know, we need a new. Um, Marshall Plan or whatever, a new global compact, we can't just be thinking nationally. But on the other hand, in terms of, as Marjorie and Gunnar and, other, and others are saying, we need to do so much more um, in building wealth locally and um, supporting local institutions, local food, local energy, etc. So there's, there's that shit, we need to go deglobalize the economy and re-globalize our compassion, our, our social connections, etc. Yeah, back uh, in the days of the uh, International Forum on Globalization, we talked about the globalization of people power rather than the globalization of corporate power. Mm. Yeah. And this basic frame of organizing around local communities you think of it as a holonic system of, of communities uh, into a holarchy in contrast to the centralization of economic power and financial markets and corporations controlling the local and totally decimating any concept of community at any level. So we really get into a framework of recognizing that the power has to be rooted in community. The primary centers of initiative have to be local living communities, but all within a larger system of relationships that support the local control and support each community in controlling and living within the means of its own material resources, while we all freely share information and useful technologies to the benefit of everybody, which is exactly the opposite of the way our current system is structured and managed. Fantastic. So as we wrap up, it seems that transitioning toward a new economy is no minor task. We've got our work cut out for us and you all are, are leading the way doing amazing things. But at the same time, unemployment's on the rise, corporations rule the world, exploitation reigns and inequality multiplies. Ooh, it can be depressing. So what gives you hope for the future? This conversation. Yeah. I mean, these are happening every place, and that is yeah. our also in the you know, the last century, twentieth century, the economic system changed twice to Keynesianism and then to neoliberalism. It's possible to change the system. And we are now at that point where so many people are dissatisfied with the current system, only about one in five people in the latest Edelman polls say it's working. Before coronavirus, there's a huge opportunity here if we work together, but it requires us really working together across levels, across systems, across geographies. That's so, I believe it's doable and that the time is now and this is the opportunity we mustn't waste. I think that's absolutely right. And I think we're seeing hints and signs of this, this new system, this new coming together, where people are, are helping their neighbors out. Um, we're seeing new, yeah. new forms of, of, of revaluing who matters in the economy. We're also seeing that government is capable uh, in an instant of, of conjuring up trillions of dollars when it needs mm. to. So we yeah. have what we need. We can do what we need. And I, I think uh, the values, 
the community-based values, care for each other, those are starting to come together. And I think uh, Stuart is absolutely right. If we can build a movement around this, um, we can we can get to where we need to get. This is fantastic. It's been a wonderful discussion. Is there anything else any of you would like to say before we conclude? Yeah, I totally agree to globalize the connection of the locals like this. Yeah, for many years, I was a kind of fan of democracy collaboratives and commonwealth.org and the New Economy Foundation and Oxfam. And so why not make this type of connections via the online and offline more often? Maybe this year, the city government, the mayor, want to provide opportunities or space for all the new type of alternative ideas get together and then makes uh, one voice. So that type of collaboration might be very productive, may, very, uh, and is very helpful. I'll jump in and say that even though we, I think all of us in, in this conversation live in societies that have been very much dominated by the market for decades since the rise of neoliberalism, it's crept into all parts of life. But when it's shut down, one, communities are there. They spring together. I live yeah. in a struggle. For the first time, has a community. It's only happened now. And I feel more connected to where I live than ever before. Two, the state still has the capacity to spring into action, to create money when it's suddenly needed, to right. house homeless people, which they said yeah. would take decades, and it's done in three days, yeah. to transform the scope of what's possible. So take away that dominance. And yes, the capacity is there to come yeah. back. And then just on a small note, this, this Amsterdam City Donut that we launched on the 8th of April, the number of people, the, the expressions of interest from Bangladesh to Costa Rica to Liverpool to Dublin to Delhi. Andrew, you gave this depressing list of, you know, things are falling <laughs> in corporations, but and you didn't say the one that we all know, which is, and people rise and yeah, people get together yeah. and they start making things happen. Yeah. And that gives me hope. Fantastic. This has been absolutely amazing. Uh, I thank you panelists for taking the time to be here with us and sharing your wisdom. You all give me hope. Certainly haven't solved all the world's problems yet, but I think we got one step closer uh, to addressing these most complex pressing issues. <laughs>